This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just describe one serial killer. I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. Today, I'll actually be discussing serial killers that were couples in honor of Valentine's Day being yesterday. But before we jump into that, don't forget to keep an eye on the Murder Lab Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as the website, MurderLabMedia.com, for updates and all kinds of goodies. I will be posting merch information. We do have t-shirts and magnets available. And don't forget to share the information with your friends, your enemies, or anyone else. As always, I'd like to thank Igor, my socially distant assistant and immoral support for everything. So instead of really digging into each of these couples, we're just going to kind of give you the basic information about them because there are quite a few. And I didn't cover all of them because there are a lot, but we picked out a chunk of them. And so I'll go through some of them and I'll give you the overview of it. And then, of course, you'll be hearing more about them in different episodes upcoming. I'm doing this chronologically. We shall start with Martin and Marie Dumoulard in 1855 to 1861 in France. It was hard to pinpoint how many they actually killed, partially because it was 1855 to 1861 in France. So <laughs> in that time period, it's harder to find um, accurate data and recordings of information and such. I read there were five deaths. There were three confirmed and three possible, so maybe six. Clothes of, they found the clothes of 10 people plus three bodies were found. Another thing said there were 21 employed and 10 were killed. And then something else said 25 or more. They primarily focused on maids and female servants. So they would give them these promises of work and then they would jump them. He would jump them, strangle them, and then... The wife, Marie, would take their items and sell them. Well, they, I think they kept some of them, and then they'd sell some of them. So it was primarily for their stuff. He would kill them with blows to the head, and then either bury them or throw them in a river. One of them actually got away. Marie turned on him and said that he was the one who did everything. But she still got life in the uh, work camp, and he got the guillotine. He was known as the maid killer. From what I saw, we don't have a lot of deep information, but it seems as though even though maybe she didn't kill them, she was selling their clothes and it seems like she was into it. And that one of the things we will compare in this episode is how their damn dynamic was. Is uh, a lot of times there's one that is more in charge and then the other one kind of falls in line or whatever. And then sometimes you see that they're both equally as depraved as the other one. In this case, it seems like he was probably the leader, and she went along. Now we'll jump to 1947 to 1949 with Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez. They killed in New York and Michigan. They had three to 17 victims. They met each other because she placed an ad in a Lonely Hearts column, and he responded to it. She was insecure, and he was a con man. So that's a fantastic some <laughs> disastrous combination for a couple is someone who's insecure and then someone who likes to play on insecurity. She actually abandoned her kids for him and then they began to use Lonely Hearts ads to find single women 
Martha would pose as Raymond's sister, and that way it would lure the women into feeling more comfortable. And then they would rob and kill them. Some of the ways that they killed the women is there's one where they forced her to overdose on pills. They beat one. They shot one. One was strangled. She had a two-year-old daughter. Martha got so tired of the baby crying after the mom died that she drowned the two-year-old. They both got the electric chair. So isn't that romantic? They both ended up dying in the same way. And they were known as the Lonely Hearts Killers because they would use the Lonely Hearts ads to get women to murder. So again, we see where the motivation seems like it's primarily for robbing. So they wanted their stuff, so they killed them, which is similar to the first couple, the Dumalilds. Since Martha was so insecure and dying for attention, the dynamic in this case is heavily Raymond. Raymond drives everything and she's willing to go along with it and not just go along with it, she will jump into it with him because she's so desperate for that attention and that feeling of belonging and wanting to please him. It's possible you've heard of any of these. I try to pick some that were maybe were a little lesser known because I think we all, all of us true crime people get a little uh, burnout on hearing the same names over and over again. Beck and Fernandez were, are also ones that I had, are fairly common known as the Lonely Hearts Killers. So Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were active from 1963 to 1965 in England, and I'm sure you've probably heard of them. They killed five children, ages 10 to 17. She was 18. She ended up getting a job where he worked. He was into Nazi literature and liked to get in trouble with the law. She hadn't really gotten into any trouble, but she was attracted to him and everything that he was into. They ended up hooking up. They were both into to sadistic sex, so she would encourage all of his depraved whims. He decided he wanted to rob a bank, so she went to the gun range, learned how to shoot guns, and she bought some guns for him. But then he decided, you know, that's not enough. Why don't we kill someone? She helped him rape, and then he cut the throat of a girl. Then they got two boys that were raped. They raped and murdered. And then there was another girl. This time, she took pictures. She recorded an audio of the girl crying and screaming while they were torturing her. They raped her, and then she got strangled. Ian decides to boast to his brother-in-law that they like to murder kids. They figured he would be impressed with that, and he would want to join the group. They brought him back to the house, and he's brother-in-law's, I think he's like 19, and he's just like, um, okay, <laughs> is this really a thing? Like, you know, how would you really think they're serious? But then when they took him over to their place, they actually killed a, Ian actually, I believe, used an axe and killed someone in front of him. So he got a little freaked out, but not so freaked out that he immediately went to the cops. He slept on it, and then uh, his wife or girlfriend was like, maybe you should just go to the cops. And so <laughs> the brother-in-law did go to the cops and turn them in. Of course, during the trial, they blamed the brother-in-law and said that he was actually the one that did all of the things. But since there were recordings and pictures and things like that, it was obvious that both Brady and Henley were involved. They both died of natural causes, and they were known as the Moore's Murderers because they would bury the children at the moors. This is a case where it began as similar to Beck and Fernandez. So we see the strong male figure and then the woman who comes along and gets swept up in it. In this case, it's interesting to see how far they go with it. It's not just they'll just go along quietly and maybe just sit there and let the guy do his thing and maybe they just don't say anything. But she actually would actively help lure the children and like I said, she would record. So she was a little more active in it. I think it's also interesting that they don't just, they didn't just focus on boys or girls. They 
had both boys and girls. And that's another thing where it's a little a little different. They tend to choose a demographic and go with it. But there are some arguments that when it comes to pedophilic behavior, that when you get to a certain, if you're interested in a certain age group, in a sense, they're all a little more androgynous, I guess. They're all young and, I don't know, I feel gross saying it. So it's where it doesn't matter if it's a boy or girl. In some sense, they just like the youth aspect of it. So that that could be a thing. And, and the vulnerability and the ease of attaining the victim and overpowering the victim. Now we shall move to Gerald and Charlene Gallego from 1978 to 1980. They had 10 victims, ages 13 to 34. All but one was fe- were female. They met in a poker club. Apparently they were into drugs and it might just be like pot and stuff, but they did like to pursue some recreational drugs together. And they were into kinky sex. He had been arrested before. Charlene would entice women with pot or drugs and then they'd kidnap them. He would rape them. They'd abuse them and then they'd shoot them. I think it's, this is another case where you see she was apparently, her IQ is, it's stated is 160 which is fairly high. And it seems like this is another case where the woman gets caught up with a man and they empower each other and work each other up into doing these terrible things. And she she would lure the woman lure the woman for him and then they would both partake of the abuse. And I believe he might have been the one who did the killing, but either way, it's bad. He ended up dying of cancer. She was released. Something that you'll start noticing a pattern of is that they're into deviant or kinky sex. Like I mentioned in Brady and Henley, they were both into more deviant sex. So that's another th- common theme that we'll see is that they, they both have that interest together. And I think that's a, a that can be a big indicator and a big a big part of it. I will note while I'm thinking of it that Martha Beck was severely jealous. And while he was wooing these women, she did not want him to actually be sleeping with him and she was not happy if he did so she was very jealous but in other couples you'll see that they they actually will the the, the woman will either enjoy seeing him with another woman or will take part in it herself so there's just interesting dynamics to see how these different couples handle different things the next couple is james and susan carson also known as michael and susan bear from 1981 to 1983 in california they had three or more victims He apparently left his first wife for her. They were pot dealers. Their first victim, they knew an an actress. She was found with her skull smashed in and knife wounds on her face and neck. There was no um, sign of sexual assault or robbery. So it was purely just a wanting to kill somebody. In one account, I read that Susan was written around the room. I only read that in one thing. So I don't know how true that is. But that seems kind of silly to literally like tag your name in a place where murder occurred but who the hell knows so they were drifting and they shot a man and tried to burn him and when that didn't work very well because apparently it is harder to burn someone than you'd think they covered him with rocks and chicken manure as you would if you have access i mean why not they drifted around some more they were picked up and then they stabbed him well she stabs the guy who picked them up and then that doesn't work so then james finished him off with a bullet then they were arrested so what stands out about them is they claim to have been pacifists and vegetarian yoga practitioners who converted to a form of Islam. They describe themselves as, and I quote, vegetarian Muslim warriors. Their crimes were from a shared mission 
to exterminate individuals they believe to be witches. So the press dubbed them the San Francisco Witch Killers. And they said Allah told them to do it. So the reason that they killed the actress and the man is because they were witches. And they were supposed to get rid of witches because Allah told them to. That's interesting. They both wound up getting life. In this case, it seems like they both were equally deluded enough to believe that people were actually witches and things. I know she said that she stabbed the man because she realized he was a witch. She was obviously as implicit as he was. They're not very good pacifists, though. Next up is Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. June through July of 1984, they killed eight people in five different states, including Dayton in Cincinnati, Ohio, Indiana and Illinois, the age ranged from 7-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old, and adults, including one person up to 77 years old. So they certainly just kind of did whatever the fuck they wanted to do. They didn't stick to a certain demographic. So Alton was on the run with a 21-year-old Deborah Brown, who had raped a 14-year-old girl. Together, they raped and strangled a 9-year-old. They drifted. They raped, stabbed, killed, raped, beat someone to death. Raped and strangled someone to death. Raped, shot someone to death. So you can kind of see the pattern that's emerging here. There's a lot of rape and then murder and different types of murder. So they don't just stick to stabbing or shooting. They like to mix it up depending on their mood. Generally, they would lure them to the car or they would break into the person's home. Some bodies were found in vacant buildings. Others were found in places like ditches. So they... Uh, they truly were just traveling and killing and dumping people and just doing what, whatever they felt like doing. Supposedly, they had a master-servant relationship with um, Alton being the master and Deborah being the servant. He died of lethal injection, and she is currently serving time in Dayton. So there you go. We have a celebrity in our midst. Isn't that exciting? David and Catherine Burney, October 6th through November 10th, 1986... In Australia, they killed four women aged 15 to 31. They actually dated as teenagers. They robbed together. Isn't it romantic? Then they, they wound up marrying other people. Then they there was divorce. They ended up meeting again. And she left um, her hubby and six kids for him. So again, we see a woman who's willing to ditch her entire family and her own children and go be with a man. They apparently were also into deviant sex. As it tends to go, they like to abduct women. Their MO was to chain them to a bed and then rape, strangle, or stab. One they gave sleeping pills to and then strangled. She, it's possible she recorded some of the instances. One of them escaped. He wound up hanging himself in his cell and she is still alive. They're known as the Morehouse Murderers because of their, their address was at like 10 Morehouse. So it's not to be confused with the Moores murderers, Ian Brady and Mira Hindley. This is David and Kathleen Burney, the Morehouse murders. In their case, you see the, the penchant for se sexual activity and amping up their sex game by bringing in other women. And that seems to be, since they were into robbery, I don't know if this was primarily to rob i think this was a sexual thing is they don't i don't really see much reference to them specifically that they had robbed the women that they were killing it was more like that was part of their sex game i noticed that several of these happened in 1986 and if you're wondering why something like this would happen in that specific time period there is a reason that american psycho was set in the 80s so the next couple is also was also active in 1986 
Carol Bundy and Douglas Clark, and I'm sure we all, our brains all lit up when we heard Bundy. So yeah, we have another Bundy serial killer, not quite as prolific as Ted, but in their own right, they were depraved and infamous. So Carol Bundy and Douglas Clark, 1986, in Los Angeles, California, killed six or seven people. They met in a bar where she was drinking alone. She had three failed marriages, and she was having an affair with her apartment manager, who also happened to be a local country singer. So she's had these failed marriages. We see where the woman is insecure and alone. She hits it off with good old Doug. She began to bring prostitutes home for both of them to share. The first thing that he did, the first murder happened when he was alone. He kidnapped them. He forced, there were two women. He forced them to flate him. He shot them in the head while they were doing it. He went to a garage. He raped them while they were dead. And then he dumped their bodies. She was actually kind of freaked out when he came home and was all excited and told her this. So she called the cops, but she wouldn't give specific clues about him. She basically said, I know someone did this thing and the bodies are in this place, but... She still didn't have the cojones to say, well, this is his name. And she was scared, but not enough to actually give him up. Well, what she does is she embraces it. Once again, he gets two, uh, he gets two sex workers, shoots them. He dumps their bodies, but he brings a head home. So the head's in her fridge. And it's amazing how the human mind and <laughs> attitude adapts. Because she goes to the fridge, gets the head, and puts lipstick on it. So it will be sexy for him. And then she watches him or partakes with him of doing sexual things to the head until they ended up getting tired of it or whatever. And they scrubbed the head and put it in a box and left it somewhere. The M.O. tended to be they would kill sex workers by shooting them or he would shoot them and then use their dead bodies for various sex acts. She winds up talking to her country singer, landlord, ex-lover, Murray, and... Drunkenly, it's it's either that she drunkenly tells him, hey, you know, we're doing these things. I saw something where one said that he mentions to her that he suspected Doug of being a murderer, of doing these horrible things. I'm not sure which one it is. I think it's probably more like she drunkenly told him. But she lures him to the van for another go-round of Lovins, and then she kills him and cuts his head off. Of course, once they are caught at the trial, he blames her. They both ended up in prison and then died of natural causes. They were known as the Sunset Strip Slayers or the Sunset Strip Killers. In this case, she was insecure, gets caught up in his stuff. They excite each other into doing more and more and more to the point where then she is willing to kill someone on her own to protect what they're doing and their relationship. So that's... Again, that's another interesting way to see how the dynamic plays out. David and Catherine Burney were active in October, November 1986 in Australia. Well, here in the States, we had Cynthia Kaufman and James Marlowe also in October and November of 1986. In California and Arizona, killing women. There were four or five victims, ages 19 to 35. Cynthia went to visit her boyfriend in prison and met his cellmate, James Marlowe. And it was love at first sight. He was a neo-Nazi, and they enjoyed robbing together. They wound up kidnapping, raping, robbing, strangling, possibly shooting women. There were a couple pe- women that wound up getting wound up missing after they went to go get money out of the ATM. When they were caught, they wound up blaming each other, and they both got death row. 
in most of these cases, it seems as though one of them turns on the other. So I find it interesting this one, in this case, they both just turned on each other. Guess it's not unconditional love. From 1986 to 1989, Ray and Faye Copeland in Missouri... There had anywhere from 3 to 12 victims. One source said that three bodies were found, all shot in the head. Another one said there were 5 to 12 victims that were shot in the head. She met him in a doctor's office when she was 19. He had done some jail time for fraud, and so they had to move around. They were farmers, and they were and in the golden years of their life. They were 69 and 76 years old. What they would do is... They had they would hire drifters to purchase cattle for them, and then Ray would write a check for the cattle, and then before the the check bounced, he would sell the cattle. So that way, they couldn't come back and get their cattle. That's another reason they had to move around a lot. So he had this cattle fraud business, and then they would kill the drifter that they had hired, so that way they wouldn't be able to tell on them. They did this with several people: is hire them get what they needed from them with the cattle fraud and then kill them. At the trial, Faye said that he beat her and forced her to be an accomplice in this, but they did wind up finding a quilt that she had made of all the victim's clothes. And there were a couple other things that implicated her, so she was apparently implicit in an accomplice in the activity. They both died of natural causes. Also in 1986, we have Mitchell Sims and Ruby Paget in South Carolina and California killed three people. She was 20 and he apparently had a common law wife at the time. This one uh, I was not expecting. He hated dominoes and that that is the catalyst for <laughs> their murder demographic. He had worked at dominoes. Apparently he didn't get the bonus he thought he deserved. So he went back to the dominoes that he had worked he held two employees up by gunpoint, tortured them, and shot them. He shot one of them four times, but the person managed to make it to the cops and ID'd him. But Mitchell and Ruby got away before the cops could get them. So they go to California, and they, at a motel, ordered a pizza from Domino's. When the delivery guy got there, they strip him down, gag him, and drown him. Sims then wore the uniform to the restaurant looted the safe, left two employees locked in the freezer, and thankfully, though, they, they ended up living. But then Sims and Paget got away. Domino's actually offered $100,000 to help catch them. They were indeed caught. Sims got death and Paget got life. They are listed as the killing team in the World Encyclopedia of Murderers by Susan Hall. I mean, I know Domino's pizza is bad, but wow. In 1987, Gwendolyn Graham and Catherine Wood in Michigan killed five people, at least. One said there were six. So five to six victims. They were all elderly victims at the nursing home where they worked together as aides. All of the victims had Alzheimer's. They were a couple. They were into bondage and experimentation. So this was another case where they were into amping up sexuality to the point where they thought they got off on killing people. They began with a game where they were going to kill people whose the first letter of their last name would spell out murder. Well, it was taking too long to actually do the word, so then they just started to kill. Wood would look, be the lookout, and then Graham would kill by covering their mouth and nose with, a, with some kind of a cloth. Graham found a new lover, and Wood got mad, and she tells her ex-husband what they had done. The ex-husband goes to the cops and reports it. 
Wood says that Graham was a mastermind and she got 20 to 40 years, but she was released in January of 2020. Meanwhile, Graham is serving life. They were known as the Lethal Lovers. An interesting tidbit is one book said that Wood was 200 pounds. Another said she was 280. One book said she was 450 pounds. <laughs> I just don't even know what to make of that. I know that there's sensationalism, but good Lord. Really? <laughs> I really doubt she was 450 pounds. I do know that they kept saying that the media, one of the big things they talk about is how overweight she was. And then it got to the point that they were talking as much about her being overweight as the fact that she killed people. So that's kind of fucked up. Also in 1987, all the way up to 2003, Michelle Fourneret and Monique Olivier in France and Belgium killed 8 to 10 people ages 12 to 22. It was all women. While he was in prison, he signed up for a prison pen pal program, and that's how he met Monique. He had been in trouble for molesting and raping a minor. In their correspondence, she said that she would help him hunt virgins, which he had a proclivity for, if he would kill her ex-husband. He agreed. He gets out and never killed her ex-husband, but I guess she was okay with that. They shot and robbed a man together. They wound up choking, raping, shooting, stabbing and strangling their victims. One victim was actually thought to be Mark Dutroux. Now, if if you remember, I covered Mark Dutroux in one of my episodes on people who have murder labs. So make sure you check that one out if you have not heard it or listen to it again to refresh yourself. So he was active in Belgium at the same time period, obviously. So that is interesting that it is something that possibly could have overlapped. What actually encouraged Monique to come forward and confess is because she saw what happened to Dutroux's wife and accomplice that I think she got something like 60 years or something. So Monique's like, you know, I don't want to wait until I'm caught and maybe, you know, maybe wait till it's too late and I have to do a lot of time. I'm just going to come forward now and maybe it won't be so bad. There is an aspect of this that just is another thing that you wouldn't expect. I watched a documentary on them. In prison, Michelle gets talking to someone and they talk about how they robbed this bank and they have all this money and all, like I don't even remember if it was specifically gold but it was something like literally they they said that we have we buried treasure and so once they got out of prison this group of them decided well we'll work together and get the money there literally was a buried treasure there they found the treasure they ended up killing one of the women that were involved in it and then use that money to buy themselves a castle. You just never know what you might actually happen upon in these cases. Never would have expected buried treasure to be involved. He was known as the Ogre of the Ardennes, and they both got life. We just have a few more here. In 1991, Rudolfo Infante and Anna Vieda killed eight people ages 14 to 20 in Mexico. They apparently lived in the same town. He was 28. She was 20. They would lure their victim victims in. They were all young women. They would promise them servant jobs. Then they would be raped, robbed, and drowned. So much like the, the Dumoulards, we see servants. They wound up getting 40 years each, which I guess is the maximum that they could get. Another fairly popular couple was from 1990 to 1992 in Canada. Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka killed three women. He was 23 and she was 17. They met at an animal hospital that she worked at. He was a sexual sadist and she gets caught up in it. She helps him rape his victims. They'd videotape each other raping the victims 
They drugged them, strangled them to death, including her own 15-year-old sister. So their first victim was actually, I believe was their first victim was actually her own sister. Carla had gotten some drugs from the vet hospital she worked at. Drugs her sister, they have their way with her, and then the sister winds up getting sick and choking and dying on her own vomit. Now, it was ruled an accident, and it wasn't obvious, you know, who would have thought that they would do that to her sister, so it was ruled as an accident. The others, though, they dismembered some of them and dropped them in a lake or a ditch. One survived. He started to abuse her, so she left him. At the trial, she said that he abused her and blamed him mostly for the crimes. Part of the reason they were caught is because there had been a rapist known as the Scarborough Rapist, and they had gotten Paul's DNA because he was a possibility to be this rapist. The guy's DNA, but it took like a year or so before they were able to actually get it tested, and by this point, people started noticing these deaths, and he wound up getting caught by that DNA and identified as a Scarborough Rapist and also as the murderer of these girls. She actually got out in 2005, because, again, she said it was mostly him and that he had abused her and that he was the one who did. Although, well, she claimed that she hadn't really had anything to do with it, but then they saw her in videos actually taking part in the depravity. So that didn't exactly help her. Although, apparently it helped her enough that she was able to get out in 2005 and he did not. They were known as the Ken and Barbie murderers because they were both your attractive, your average attractive white people that which made it even harder for people to believe that they would do something this, like this because, you know, they seem like upstanding, beautiful citizens. The last one I have for you is 2012 to 2018, Juan Carlos Hernandez and Patricia Martinez in Mexico. They killed between 10 and 20. It was hard to find definite numbers. They met when in 2008 when she was a waitress and he was a regular. This one thing said that she was a sex worker and waitress. I don't know. Their M.O. was apparently raping, beheading, and killing with a knife, then dismembering them after luring them into their home. The wife would keep their kids outside while he would do his thing. Supposedly, they've also confessed to cannibalizing the bodies of their victims. They were arrested when they were transporting human remains in a baby stroller, as you would. I mean, whatever's handy, right? Following a search of their homes, investigators found additional human remains in buckets filled with cement in a vacant lot, and the rest was wrapped in plastic in a refrigerator near their home. They have previously been sentenced to four years in prison for human trafficking after selling the baby of one of their victims and the bones of at least one of the victims. I also read that apparently they fed the, the human parts to their dogs. This is one of those cases that it's hard to tell what's sensationalized and what's not, but obviously some fucked up shit was going on. They were known as the Monsters of Aketepec, or the Butchers of Aketepec, if I pronounced that right. If I did not, I apologize, but it was kind of fun to say it that way. That is all that I have for you. There are several couples. I'm sure that I will cover them for you at some point. Maybe next Valentine's Day we'll do another round. So if that doesn't say Valentine's Day, I don't know what does. I hope you all enjoyed your Valentine's Day. I personally don't really care about Valentine's Day. If you're into it, that's great. If you're not, that's fine too. But I hope that you're not so into it that you would find a woman and kill them, kill her together. So please don't be that into Valentine's Day or any other day of the year. It's not really a good idea. So it's fine to get into some crazy sexy shit together. Just don't hurt other people and don't kill them. It's not nice. And it does not make for a happy Valentine's Day for at least one person. So just stick to what makes everyone happy. Again, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'd like to thank Igor. Igor does have some more stuff in the works. I'm working on editing 
a couple episodes, so you will hear more of Igor soon. Don't forget to keep an eye on the Facebook and Instagram pages for more information and merch. You can go to murderladmedia.com to get the RSS feed to put in your favorite podcast app. And we're on Google Play and iTunes as well. Thank you for entering the lab. Isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Isn't it frightfully good to have a dong? It's swell to own a stiffy. It's divine to own a dick. From the tiniest little tadger to the world's biggest prick. So three chairs for your William or John Thomas. Hooray for your one-eyed trouser snake. Your piece of pork, your wife, best friends, your Percy or your cock. You can wrap it up in ribbons. You can slip it in your sock. But don't take it out in public or they will stick you in the dock and you won't come back.